0: So the modernists, they, demyth- they demythologise the Bible completely, taking, you know, sort of saying that things aren't literally, you know, miracles. But true Christians, genuine Bible-believing Christians, are now playing around with it as well and even though they're only doing it over certain issues believe me it is absolutely fatal and what i want to do is that we're asking how did jesus and paul the apostle interpret the bible and we're going to see how totally at variance they are with these believers today who are playing around with what's literal in the Bible and what isn't. Let's start off with creation, because this is something where even genuine Christians are now demythologizing the Bible, and they're saying that Genesis isn't a literal account of what happened. Uh, Now, go to Genesis 1. Now, the thing about Genesis 1 is that... um, if I gave Genesis 1, if you know, if, if, if I found a passing Martian who spoke English but had no preconceived ideas, alright, about anything on Earth, and if I gave him the book of Genesis, and then I said, read the book of Genesis, and he read the book of Genesis, alright, and then I said to him, according to the book of Genesis, how long did it take God to create the universe? And that Martian would unhesitatingly say, Six days. Six times, 24 hours. Because even Genesis 1 and 2, from the language it uses, are... It it couldn't be more obvious. Only an idiot or a, a Christian with something to prove could miss it. It couldn't be more straightforward. There was evening and morning, all right? But let's allow, for one moment, let's say that you cannot, from Genesis 1 and 2... You can't establish from them whether the days were 24 hours or long periods of time. Now, I maintain that in Genesis, only a twit could miss it. It's obviously literal days. But let's assume for one moment you can't work it out from Genesis. All right? So, therefore... Is there somewhere else in the Bible that sorts this out for us once and for all? If we cannot ascertain from Genesis whether the days were literal or whether they were long periods of time, is there somewhere else in the Bible where it tells us it absolutely clearly in such a way that we can't miss? Well, yes, there is. Go to Exodus. Go to Exodus. Remember what we're asking about. We're saying, did God create the entire universe in six times 24 hours or not? What does the Bible say? And in Exodus chapter 20, we have the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now, start from verse 9. And this is God speaking to Moses. So, in actual fact, Moses wrote Genesis 1 and 2 because God told him to, all right? So we're saying, well, all right, we, we can't be sure from that bit of their writings whether or not it was literal days or not. But here, the same two people are involved. It's God speaking to Moses. Exactly the same two people, all right? Six days you shall labor and do all your work, blah, blah, blah. So this is the law of the Sabbath given to Israel. Verse 11, now look at this, and I do apologize if if you're an evolutionist. For in six days the Lord made heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Now what is happening here is that God is telling Moses that the Israelites are to work for six days and then have a day off because God created the universe in six days now are these days literal or are they not? they are literal and let me tell you how I know because it is highly unlikely that God would have said that in my covenant with you Moses and Israel I expect you to work for $642 periods of time, and then have a day off. <laughs> now, 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 see, it is quite obvious That God is saying to Moses, you're going to work for six days and then take a break because I created the universe in six days. They're literal 24 hours, you see. So the point is we can establish, even if we can't from Genesis 1 and 2, and we can, but even for those who doubt you can from Genesis 1 and 2, can you see that from Exodus, there's no doubt about it, the Bible says in Genesis and Exodus that God created the entire universe from absolutely nothing. Nothing in six periods of 24 hours. Now then, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? Go to Mark. The Gospel of Mark. <coughs> Find verse 10. <clears throat> chapter. chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And verse 5. Now this is Jesus in a dispute about divorce and stuff like that. Now look at this. Jesus said to them, for your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. There are two things I want you to notice from that. First of all, Jesus believed in the literal Adam and Eve. And believe me, people who believe in the literal Adam and Eve, but still try to believe that the universe took longer than six times, 24 hours to create, you're really in problems. I mean, if Adam and Eve are literal, so is the six day creation, it's as simple as that, alright? Jesus believed in a literal Adam and Eve. In the beginning, God created male and female, but look at this. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. When did God, according to Jesus, make male and female? From the beginning of creation. Did Jesus believe that God created over billions and billions of years and then male and female came on the scene? Absolute rubbish! Jesus said, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Can you see? Because God created Adam and Eve within six days of the universe coming into existence. Can you see? Jesus believed the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, in an absolutely literal way. Alright? He believed that Adam and Eve were created right at the beginning of creation. Not millions of years after it, through evolution or stuff like that. Can you see how crazy it is? And after all, should not Jesus be the one who might know... He did it. He did it. Shouldn't he be the one who knew? Can you see? He was the one who created Adam and Eve, you see. But go to Matthew 19. Because I want to show you something incredibly, incredibly important here. It's a little something that you can miss so easily, but it is so important. Now, this is Matthew's account of the same dispute that Jesus got involved in. And in verse 4 and 5, He answered them, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. Now what I want you to understand here is that this bit, where it says for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, Jesus is here saying that God the Father said that. Can you see? Have you not read that he who made them, made them from male and female, and said, for this reason? So here, Jesus is saying that God himself said that, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. So Jesus attributes those words, for this reason, shall a man leave his father and mother, he attributes those words directly to having been spoken by God the Father himself. Go now to Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24, which is where these words occur. Now, remember, Jesus has said that it was God himself who said those words. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, alright? Now look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Does something strike you as being a bit odd? It should do, because Moses wrote it, didn't he? This is Moses writing it, can you see? Now the incredible thing is that Moses, while he was writing, and remember the Bible was written under the inspiration of God. The guys were writing down what the Lord was telling them to write down, you see. Now Moses simply, while he's writing, he writes, therefore a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. And Moses wrote that. It's not in, you know, sort of like speech marks or anything like that. It's, I mean, Moses isn't reporting that God said it to, you know, Eve or Adam. It's just Moses wrote it down. And yet Jesus said that it was God who said it. Jesus equated these words of Moses with being the words of God himself. Why? Because they're the scripture. They are the word of God. Can you see? That was Jesus' attitude to the Bible. Therefore, we're seeing that Jesus believed absolutely literally in what the Bible said. And creation, which is a sticking point for some, there are Christians today who don't believe Genesis literally. It's crazy. Jesus believed the genesis account of creation literally let's have a look at the worldwide flood go to matthew 24 because you see the christians who try and demythologize the genesis creation account all right what they're that you see therefore they've got problems with the flood as well A universal flood that destroyed the whole world goes hand in hand with creation being six times 24 hours. If you play around and say that the six days were long periods of time, then you've got to lose the universal flood. You've got to say it was a local flood. All right. Now then, let's look at Jesus. Um, And this is Matthew 24, verse 37. He's preaching about what it's going to be like at the second coming. 37. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying, blah blah blah, and they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now can you see, Jesus believed that the flood of Noah was worldwide, at the end of the flood there were only 8 people left, and that was Noah and his family, 9 people. Can you see, Jesus believed it literally, the flood was worldwide and destroyed everything, He, Jesus <coughs> said, it swept them all the way. Not some parts of the world, it swept them all the way, but the other clincher, is that Jesus is comparing the flood of Noah with his eventual second coming. And we know that at the second coming, everyone on the face of the earth will be brought to Jesus for judgment. We don't doubt that, do we? we? I mean, we don't believe that at the second coming, you know, certain parts of the earth are going to be affected you know sort of like some countries but not all of them i mean some will carry on as normal as second coming won't touch them rubbish it's yeah it's absolutely universal therefore jesus literally believed in a literal worldwide flood go to matthew 12 let me tell you jesus believed that the place of the dead was in the center of the earth all right I believe that the place of the dead is in the centre of the earth. Alright, now the believer's compartment, alright, that went up into heaven when Jesus ascended. But the point is, Tartarus and Hades, paradise has been transferred, but Tartarus and Hades are in the centre of the earth. Now then, what did Jesus believe? Alright, Matthew 12 verse 40, listen to this. The men of... What, what did I say? Matthew... 12 12 verse 40 For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale by the way Jesus believed that literally as well he didn't believe that Jonah was a parable he believed that Jonah was for three days and three nights in the belly of a big fish and then spewed up on the sea front near Nineveh which was where God wanted him to go he says as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth well I'm sorry you can't make that mean anything else Jesus said and I don't believe Jesus said anything he didn't believe he didn't teach about little green men because he didn't believe in them alright what Jesus taught he believed Jesus believed that The place of the dead was in the centre of the earth, just like the Old Testament said. Jesus believed it, quite literally. He's got no attempt to try and change the meaning of it. The literal meaning of it, the place of the dead is in the centre of the earth. Jesus himself believed that. Now the point is this, sometimes Christians say, oh yes, but Jesus was a man of his times. I mean, he was accommodating ...the beliefs of the people around him. Christians say this. Now let me say to you... ...if these words of Jesus aren't literally true... ...for whatever reason... ...let's say he was accommodating himself to the culture of the day... ...or whatever, or their pre-scientific beliefs... ...if we have here... ...statements from Jesus that in actual fact are wrong... ...for whatever reason then tell me this, what else might Jesus have been wrong about, for whatever reason? Can you see the problem? If Jesus is wrong about this, and he's not telling us the literal truth here, how are you going to know, when you turn to another of Jesus' sermons, that he's not doing the same thing? If Jesus isn't literally right here, how do you know he's literally right anywhere? Can you see you've got no basis to know anymore whether Jesus was actually speaking the literal truth or having us on? Because the point is that if he was accommodating the people of his day, well, what about us? We're lost, aren't we? Because we'd never know whether Jesus actually meant something that he said or whether it was just in there for the culture of the day. It's crazy. If Jesus is wrong in one place, then you can't know where else. He might have been wrong. He might not have been wrong anywhere else at all. But you would have no way of knowing that. Can you see? Paul. How did Paul interpret the Bible? We're on... uh, Just go to Ephesians 4. We're on this thing about the place of the dead... Being at the centre of the earth. The Old Testament taught that all the way through. How does Paul the Apostle interpret the Bible? Ephesians 4. And verse 9. Paul says... In saying he ascended... What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Paul interpreted the Old Testament literally. Paul believed that the place of the dead was in the centre of the earth. How about Paul and creation? How did Paul interpret Genesis? Alright, go to Romans. Go to Romans. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. and he says therefore as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin And so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Go down into verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam. Now let me tell you, there you have Paul writing about an Adam in whom he literally believed. Paul believed in a literal Adam. But more than that, Paul is saying here that death entered the universe because Adam sinned. Before the fall of Adam, before Adam ate the fruit from the tree, before Adam did that, there was no death. Death came as a result of Adam's fall. Now I'll tell you, immediately again, I'm sorry, evolution is now flying out of the window. Because evolution presupposes that man, or or Christians who try to pander to evolution, They say that God used evolution and that the crown of his evolutionary work was man created in his image. Well, I'm sorry, you can't have that. And the reason you can't have that is that that is saying that for millions of years, the evolutionary process, which is progress through death, had been going on for countless millions of years before man came on the scene. And here, Paul says, death came into the world when Adam fell can you see Paul interpreted the Old Testament literally look at verse 17 if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace of the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Christ Jesus you see the thing is that what some Christians try to do is they make out that Adam was kind of symbolic not literal he was symbolic for the whole of the human race now there's a real problem let's read verse 18 and 19 then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now let me ask you this. On what basis do you make the first one man, Adam, that Paul's talking about, symbolic, and yet have the second one man as literal? Paul is contrasting what we've regained through Jesus after what Adam's done. So he said Adam's sin led to condemnation, but Jesus' act of righteousness leads to freedom now how can Adam be symbolic and you still keep Jesus as being literal can you see how ridiculous these attempts are if Adam was symbolic well you're absolutely lost, absolutely lost. Paul believed in a literal Adam and Eve and uh, he had no problems with it whatsoever and in fact the basis of Paul's teaching is that what was lost when Adam sinned has been gained when Jesus died, has been regained when Jesus died. Now, how can you remain a sensible person and try to maintain that Adam, who caused the trouble, was symbolic? But Jesus, who undid the trouble, was literal. I can't it's ridiculous. You're just in nonsense land. You're flying around in cloud cuckoo land. I mean, it's just intellectually dishonest, all right? Um, and you see, the thing is, we're seeing here that Paul, he literally believed, all right, in the Old Testament. He translated it in an absolutely, he interpreted it in an absolutely literal way, all right? So, what tends to happen now, and this is where Christians are kind of playing around with this demythologisation, they'll tend to spiritualise the first eleven chapters of Genesis. They'll say that Genesis one to eleven they're not literal history, they're poetry. It's kind of, it's sort of poetry, but nevertheless, God was it was God's way of trying to say something that was unsayable. I mean, there are loads of other unsayable things in the Bible, like salvation, but God managed to say it. Why should he be at a sudden loss for words when it comes to creation? But what they say is that Genesis 1-11 is spiritual, but Genesis 12 onwards, then, the Bible becomes literally true. But the problem is this, where are you going to stop? If Genesis 1-11 to are spiritual and not literal, then uh, on what basis are you going to argue that the Gospel of Matthew is literal? Can you see? you've, You've pulled out the rug from under your feet, you see. But these people, these Christians, and they're genuine Christians, but nevertheless they've been deceived by the devil, they maintain that the Bible is literally true from Genesis chapter 12 onwards. So they say from Genesis chapter 12 onwards the Bible is literally true. But the problem... Is that from Genesis 12 onwards, the Bible teaches that Genesis 1 to 11 is literally true. How are you going to get out of that one? Can you see how lunatic it is when people start playing around with the literal truth? of these things. Now that's demythologization, deculturalization. I've made this one up, alright, you know, as a theologian who came up with demythologization, but deculturalization, I'm patenting that as a Bible teacher's term tonight, alright. And uh, what, what these Christians are doing, what they're saying is that there are things in the Bible that was merely the culture of the day. Certain teachings in the Bible, it was merely the, the culture of the day. And because the culture is different today, because we're in a different culture, therefore, our practice has got to change. So there are certain teachings in the Bible, all right, which were only for then. That they were for that culture, and that's it, okay? But for today, of course, it's completely different. I mean, it's like, for it's, you know, sort of take the whole thing about women head covering. People say, oh, well, you know, women covering their heads, that, that was just a cultural thing, they say, you see. Now, I mean, I've done a tape on that called Hats and Hair, which you can get, but in that one we saw that the Bible doesn't even teach that women have got to wear a head covering. It teaches that long hair is a head covering, all right. You know, so, I mean, in regards to that, the Bible doesn't teach that women have got to wear something on their hats, heads. The Bible <laughs> teaches simply that women have got to have long hair. That's all. So get hold of that tape if you don't understand that passage and again it's got nothing to do with culture whatsoever I mean you know Paul was saying that women should have long hair to show that they are in subjection to the men folk that's nothing to do with culture that is ongoing today so the thing that I really want to home in on because this is the classic example of where this deculturisation is happening today and it's the whole question about women being in leadership because you see the thing is that Paul would not allow women to be elders. It was as simple as that. He would not allow women to be in a position where they had authority in the church over men. Now, what the deculturalizers are saying is that they're saying that that was simply the culture of the day. Paul was a product of the culture of his day. That was the culture of the day, so therefore that's what he did. It doesn't apply today, we're in a different culture. Now then, there are two things that I want you to to see about that. Actually go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And the first thing that we're going to see is that the issue of women being in leadership in churches, as far as Paul was concerned, was nothing to do with the culture of the day. His reason for forbidding women to be in positions of leadership in the church was nothing whatsoever to do with the culture of his day. Let's actually read it. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 12. He says, I permit no woman to teach... All right, now uh, I I will do a study on this fairly, you know, before too long. In the Greek tenses, what this is literally meaning, I permit no woman to teach and to continue teaching to such an extent that she becomes a Bible teacher. A woman can't be a Bible teacher because a Bible teacher is eldership, all right? And women cannot be elders. They can't have authority over men in the church. So he says, I permit no woman to be a teacher in the church or to have authority over men. She is to keep silent for adam was formed first then eve adam wasn't deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor now what i want you to understand is that paul forbids women to be leaders in the church nothing to do with the culture of the day but because eve was deceived by the devil right at the beginning of creation He's got nothing to do with culture. It's got to do with Genesis chapters 1 to 3. It's got to do with the fact that Eve was deceived by Satan. So can you see that when people try and argue that Paul's not allowing women to be leaders was to do with the culture of today it wasn't to do with the culture of the day at all it was because he was teaching that women are far more open to being deceived which they are and therefore it's dangerous to have women in leaders of spiritual authority it's as simple as that, nothing to do with culture, it's to do with women being deceived by the devil now there's another kind of uh, argument that people try and put in, alright, and they try and say that when paul says i permit no woman to be a bible teacher to teach or to have authority over men they point out that the greek word that translated in my bible as have means usurp usurp to take by force so what they're trying to say is that really what this means that it is it, paul saying that women who shouldn't be in authority mustn't try and be in authority he's they, saying they try and twist it like that they got a problem Because Paul doesn't just say that women aren't to usurp authority, he says he doesn't permit women to be Bible teachers. So so you've got two separate phrases. I do not permit a woman to be a Bible teacher or to have authority over men. Now, if you're going to play around with the have authority over men and say, well, you know, it just means that some women can't be elders, that's all. Some women can't have authority over men. What are you going to do with the fact that there's nothing you can do with the fact that Paul says, I permit no woman to teach? And it's Paul himself who says that one of the qualities of an elder is that he must be able to teach. Can you see? There's no getting round it. You can play all these tricks Paul said quite clearly that women are not to be in leadership in the church, and it has got nothing whatsoever, whatsoever to do with the culture of his day. It was Paul teaching the direct word of God himself. But, let's now, let's just suppose that it is cultural. I've shown you it's not, nothing to do with culture whatsoever, alright? But let's suppose for one moment it was. Let's be thankful it wasn't, because if it was, boy, now have we got problems. And the problems we've got are this. If we look at Paul's teaching about women and say that it doesn't apply today because Paul was just, it was just the culture of his day. It wasn't God's will, it was the culture of his day. So if we're to say that Paul was wrong in his teaching about women, on what basis are you on what basis can you be sure that he was right in his teaching about sexual morality? If you're going to say, women can be in leadership, and I say to you, the Bible says they shouldn't, oh, the Bible, it's Paul, he was wrong there, all right? Now, say I come along and I say, I'm sleeping with my next-door neighbour. You say, you shouldn't, I say, why not? And you say, the Bible says it's wrong. I say, oh, no, 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 that was just the culture of the day, I respond to you and you haven't got, you know, you're like a dog before between four trees, you haven't got a leg to stand on, can you see, if you start, can you see it's just as well that it wasn't and it's, and on the point about sexual morality, because this is what people say, they say Paul was wrong about women, but of course he was right about sexual morality and you say, well how do you know well the rest of the Bible concurs with him on his teaching about sexual morality yes it does, but there's still the problem, the rest of the Bible concurs with Paul on his prohibition of women having leadership over men. Can it's as simple as that. There's no way out of it. No, it was nothing to do nothing to do at all with culture or anything and what can you see when you start demythologizing the Bible or deculturalizing it can you see you're all lost absolutely at sea You've, you've got no way of knowing where to stop it's as simple as this if bits in this book are wrong how could you ever know whether the bit you're reading is one of the bits that's right or one of the bits that's wrong can you see it's that simple Now, the thing is, that what happens when you play around with the Bible, what happens is that the Bible is no longer your final authority. You see, the idea of the Bible is that the Bible is right, you're wrong, and so am I. The Bible is right, the Bible alone. Now, if you say, ah, but the Bible was wrong here, and do something contrary to to what the Bible says, then the Bible is not your final authority, and you mustn't be dishonest and pretend it is. You are your own final authority. Because you're saying, the Bible is authoritative, except where I disagree with it. And that is another way of saying, I will do what I like when I like. And what's happening in the church today, especially in the charismatic movement, is that we have the situation, much as it was in the time of judges, and it is absolutely pitiful, where the Bible says, and each man did what he thought was right, in his own eyes. And if you're not going to accept the Bible literally, then can you see that you're, you're just all at sea? You're reserving the right to disagree with things in the Bible. You're reserving the right to be your own final authority rather than allowing God. It's as simple as this. If Genesis 1-11 is not historical, how do you know that Genesis 12 onwards through the Revelation is? How do you know? You don't. Because if one bit of the Bible's wrong, you will never know if any bit that you're reading is right or wrong. In exactly the same way that if you're going to say that, oh, it was just cultural. That's all, you know, certain things, just cultural. but if that's the case, then... you you just haven't got a leg to stand on you can do what you like you can dismiss anything in the Bible that doesn't suit you simply by saying oh well that's not literal or simply by saying oh well you know that was just cultural and what gets me is that sometimes I speak to Christians and I'll challenge them and I will I will challenge people who are disagreeing with the Bible and saying that God's got it wrong. I will challenge them. And I say to them, how do you know that Genesis 1 to 11 are spiritual but the rest is literal? And do you know what they say? But well, it's obvious. It's obvious, they say. Well, we've seen it wasn't to Jesus and it wasn't to Paul. It wasn't obvious to them. Can you see how stupid this is? Christians say, well, it's obvious it's not literal. Well, why did Jesus, who presumably had the best intellect ever, why did Jesus believe it literally? Can you see, these are just excuses to justify our sinfulness and our rebellion against God. We've got to get this sorted out. The Bible is our final authority. To go against the Bible is to go against God. To rebel against the Bible is to rebel against God himself. This is the real nitty-gritty of the Christian life. It's the real nitty-gritty. You see, the thing is, either you go by what the Bible says literally in its entirety, and no demythologizing, no deculturalizing, either you take that approach, or you're left with the whole thing purely resting on your opinion. And I'll tell you, opinions are the very thing that the Bible has been given to us, to deliver us from. Let me tell you, I don't give a fig about your opinions about what God says. I'm not interested in your opinions. I'm not interested in my opinions. We want to know what God says. Can you see the point? We're not interested in what other people think. We've got to learn to stop being so interested in what we think individually. Opinions of men are the very thing that the Bible delivers us from. Because on any subject that the Bible speaks on there, we have the opinion of God. It is God's word. And it delivers us from this bondage that we have to people's opinion, or our opinion, or my opinion, or whatever. You see, the Bible is a totally objective arbiter. This is what's so brilliant. We can't see the wolf for the trees. The Bible is a totally objective arbiter and the point is that in the Bible when we do what the Bible says we know that we are then acting with right judgement because we're acting on God's judgement on a thing and can you see that unless you go by the Bible in all things then leadership merely becomes the whim of the elders Can you see how dangerous that is? The whim of the church. You get favouritism. Like someone does something wrong, and because the elders like them, they're treated leniently. Someone else does something wrong, and because the elders don't like them, they've been a problem, they're out. The Bible makes sure that everyone is treated the same. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In fact, this is the verse that we've taken, um, you know, as the basis of the tape ministry that we run, run from here. Now, look at what Paul says. He says, 1 Corinthians 4:6. I have applied all this for, um, for your benefit, that you may learn by us to live according to Scripture. That's what we need to do, to live according to Scripture, that none of you may be puffed up in favour one against another. Can you see? Because without the solidity of the literal, complete word of God, it's left to men's judgments and men's opinions. And believe me, that is when Satan gets in. That is when there is deception. And it's absolutely, you know, it's awful. So the thing is, when you stick with what the Bible says. There will be no favoritism, because everyone is treated the same. There will be no mistakes. Now, mistakes will only emerge, because we haven't done what the Bible says. Can you see? But there are no mistakes, when it comes to guidance and counsel in the Bible. We want just God's word, period. That's all we want. We want the word of God itself. Now, my favorite picture of this, as you well know, is that sort of like, is that of the spaceship and that we're we're sitting in a spaceship and if you've got astronauts circling you know like at this moment there's a spaceship marooned up there isn't it Uh, sort of like the Russian one now in a spaceship circling the earth if a tiny little meteorite pierces the hull then eventually all the air escapes and you're dead now when you start challenging the bible in little bits and pieces like throw genesis one and two away it's not literal uh paul's teaching about women that was just the culture of the day what you'll do is you're actually shoving little holes in the hull of your spaceship and i'll tell you what's going to happen you're dead because it doesn't look very much you can hardly see the hole but all your air is escaping and you're dead it only takes a little hole i mean big bath of water to have a bath in and you pull the tiny little plug out and it's all gone it takes a little while, but it's all gone. And can you see, Satan is trying to empty the word of God by deceiving Christians on these little points. Let us compromise God's word here and there, and their little holes, and the air is escaping, and we're going to end up in trouble about it. And you see, the thing is that for me, this is really my burden. And it's quite simply this. I mean, so, so some people think that, I'm just a troublemaker leave these things alone it's only offending people it's only upsetting people now the burden I have from the Lord is is this you see if I do not proclaim and defend the truth of the Bible precisely at the point at which believers are disbelieving it then I am not defending the truth of the Bible in the slightest can you see what I mean unless I defend the Bible at the point it's being attacked I'm not defending it Years ago when I lived in Suffolk there was a strict Baptist church I used to preach at sometimes and once I just turned up there, I was driving past, it was a Sunday evening and uh, so I went to their service and I did this a few times and there was one guy that they often used to have there and uh, you know sort of typical strict Baptist lay preacher and every time I heard him, he, without fail he would lay into the Catholic church. Now every word he said was right, every word he said was right and I sat there thinking, you coward. Everyone else thought he was brave. Oh, what an uncompromising preacher they used to say about this guy. But I'll tell you, if you lay in to the Catholics at a strict Baptist church, you're a hero. Now, can you see why he was a coward? Because he should have been lying into the Catholics at a Catholic church. It's funny, at one fellowship, in fact, they've, they've stopped me coming now. They said to me once, why do you keep preaching against the Anglican church? And I said, because you're Anglicans. I said, I'm not going to preach against Catholics here. I said, I'll preach against Catholics to Catholics, you're Anglicans, and I used to preach against the Anglican Church. They eventually threw me out. But can you see the point? (laughs) The the thing is, that unless what we're doing... Now that preacher, preaching against Catholicism in a strict Baptist church, he was scratching where no one was itching. Can you see the point? Now we've got to start scratching where the itches are. You see, we've got to start defending the truth of the Bible. Now then, am I right to take this attitude? This this is the last point we've just got to, to see. Am I right to take this attitude? An awful lot of people say that I'm wrong to. I'm stirring up unnecessary division and stuff like that. Now then, I'm going to answer that question, am I right to have this attitude? But, I'm going to answer it from, where else? The Bible itself. And I'm going to show you that I'm dead right to have this attitude. But I'm dead right, not because there's anything special about me, but because it's what the Bible itself says. Go to 2 Timothy again. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. He says... Follow the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. That's what Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, guard the truth. That is the attitude we should have. Go to chapter 6. 1 Timothy, rather. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20. Paul says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid the godless chatter and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have missed the mark as regards the faith. Go to Titus. Titus chapter 1. And here Paul is talking about the qualifications of an elder. Titus chapter 1 verse 9. And what Paul says is he must hold firm to the sure word as taught. And he says, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to confute those who contradict it. To confute... Those who contradict it. Do you know what that word confuses? It's our old friend Elencho. We saw him earlier. It means to convict, and it means to tell off, and it means to expose. And I'm going to quote what Vine says in his Bible dictionary about this passage, all right? He says it's with the suggestion of putting the convicted person to shame. The job of elders in the church is partially that if people come in and contradict the Word of God, that we put them to shame. How dare we contradict what God says? What right do we have to contradict what God says? This is the attitude that the Bible has in regards to the Scriptures. The emphasis today is largely on the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's folly. It's folly. The emphasis must be on the teaching that we have in the Word of God. And then when the Holy Spirit leads, we'll be in a position to know whether it's the Holy Spirit or whether it's another gum tree that the charismatic movement is just climbing up in harmony. For heaven's sake. I mean, we're back to pagan superstition. We've got holy water coming back with a bang. For heaven's sake, we've got to come to terms with what the Word of God says. Go to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, and we're drawing to a close now. 2 Timothy in chapter 4. Now, look at what Paul says here. 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, preach the Word. Well, what's the Word? The Christian message, the Bible. Be unfailing in patience and in teaching. Unfailing in patience and teaching. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And that time is here, and I'm talking about spirit-filled believers. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own likings and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myth. I'll tell you, the people who need demythologizing are the Christians who are saying that Genesis isn't literal. I'll tell you, evolution is the biggest myth I've ever heard. It really is absolutely unbelievable. It's those Christians who need demythologizing, not the Christians who believe the Bible literally. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. We want the Holy Spirit to lead us. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not despise prophesying. We want to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying now. But look what he says. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. The only way you can know if something is a leading of the Holy Spirit. Or whether it is a demonic deception. Is by testing it against the word of God. Now, can you see, once you accept the thesis that the Holy Spirit can lead against the Word of God, you're dead. And the reason you're dead is because Satan can then deceive you about anything. Absolutely anything. And this is what's happening to believers today. Everything must be tested by the Word of God. And that includes, of course, every word I say. Every word I've said tonight, you must test by the Word of God yeah that we need to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us but it's only by testing it all with the word of God that we're going to know what is the Holy Spirit and what isn't and everything I say everything anybody says does it match up with the word of God is it what the Bible teaches if it isn't what the Bible teaches it's wrong no matter who says it If it doesn't tie up with what the Bible says, it's wrong. And if I ever teach something that doesn't tie up with the scripture, reject it. Absolutely reject it, ignore it. You must only receive from anybody that which is clearly in accordance with the word of God itself. But there's a flip side to that. You see, that makes me, and everyone, every Bible teacher, and every Christian, that makes me accountable. And that's quite right. Nothing of what I say must be received, unless it can clearly be seen to be in accordance with the Word of God. But there's a flip side to that, and it's this. The point is that neither must you reject anything that someone in ministry says unless you can demonstrate from the Word of God that it is wrong If I teach something that is not biblical, reject it If I teach something that is biblical, whether you like it or not, it is incumbent upon you to do it Not because I have said it, but simply because you now know that it's in the Word of God Can you see the point? So don't go away tonight saying, oh, no, that's, you know, I mean, over, I mean, sometimes we deal with some subjects which raise controversy here. All right. But the point is, it's no use people going around or, or going away from here saying, oh, what a load of rubbish. I don't agree with that and rejecting it unless you can demonstrate from the word of God that what has been taught is a load of rubbish. Can you see? So, whereas you mustn't receive anything unless it's biblical, neither must you reject anything unless it is clearly unbiblical. Can you see what I mean? And uh, this, this is the vitally important thing. And I just want to end with one, because this, this really tickled me, the other. It's a bit naughty, no names or anything like that. But uh, someone I know was talking to someone I don't know, you see. And uh, and the person that I don't know said to the person that I do know, all right? Because the person I do know has said to this person I don't know something that I had taught, in fact, here, all right? Now, they disagreed with it, but albeit agreed that what I said was scriptural. All right, but nevertheless they still disagreed with it, all right? which is, I, can't, I can't work people out like that. But you see, the point is, so the person that I do know was talking about this thing that he disagreed with to the person that I don't know. And the person that I don't know said to him, you know, Beresford's a good Bible teacher, but he must learn to keep his opinions to himself. <laughs> so, you see, what that means is quite simply this. When I teach something that they happen to like, it doesn't matter whether it's scriptural or not, but if I teach something that they like, Beresford's a good Bible teacher. If I teach something they don't like, regardless of whether it's scriptural or not, then that's just Beresford's opinions and he's got to learn to keep them to himself. So, I mean, I, I am open. I am open to correction. And uh, this woman, this person thinks I shall keep my opinions to myself. So, we finish with tonight. Next week we will be back and we will have an hour and a half of absolute silence and I will not open my mouth. We'll end it there.